You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile is heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 3, June 30th, 2016. Today we're talking with Rich Sheridan, CEO of Menlo Innovations, which is based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Rich is a pioneer in the software industry, having been a programmer since the early 70s. He's also an avid history buff, which is where much of his inspiration and influence come from in terms of his innovative approach to leadership. Rich has also written a fantastic book on corporate culture entitled Joy, Inc., and he delights in spreading this excellent message through his numerous speaking engagements around the world. So Rich, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you have a very extensive background, which while it isn't deliberately agile with air quotes, it is very agile in nature. So tell us about your journey and what led you to co-found Menlo Innovations. Yeah, for me, it goes back to those little kid moments I had when I first started coding back in 1971, which is the first time I laid hands on a computer as a freshman in high school. And the first program I wrote, I typed the word run, and it was on a teletype, clacking out on a roll of paper, because that's the way the computers used to work in those days. And it clacked out, hi, Rich, because that's what I told it to do. And I was hooked. I knew what I wanted to do the rest of my days. I, I thought this is an you know, this is a chance for me to be the kind of artist I wanted to be, an artist with technology, and it appealed to my inner builder. And I, I started off coding for pay uh, before I could even drive a car. I got a job at the local school district creating an email system for that school, even before the word email would hit the, uh, you know, hit the presses. You know, it's probably about a decade before that. But um, very quickly after graduating with a couple of degrees in computer science and computer engineering. I, I, I was quickly falling out of love with the profession. And I thought it was either something wrong with me or there was just something fundamentally wrong in the universe. And uh, as I started to look around, as I got into my 30s, uh, I started to realize, no, this wasn't me. This was, this was a bigger deal. There was something fundamentally wrong with the universe of software design and development. And uh, while I was considering getting out of the industry entirely at that point, because I was so disillusioned, I decided that I was going to hang in there and give it a shot, see if I could uh, pursue a significant change. And um, I was drawn to books at that point. Now, this is we're talking in the late 80s, early 90s. And the books I was drawn to had nothing to do with technology. They had everything to do with organizing human teams in a more effective way. And quite frankly, that's the challenge we, you know, most organizations uh, have, whether technical or non-technical, is how do we get the humans working together? 
And this was this became a passionate pursuit of mine. And so the books I was reading are books like uh, Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline on the Art and Practice of Learning Organizations, Tom Peters' book, In Search of Excellence. And these were sort of the oldies but goodies back in those days. And, um, and I was determined to find a better way of doing things than was customary. I was determined to dig my way out of this trough of dissolution that, that I found myself into. And, um, uh, and what was weird was I kept getting promotions, even though I was frustrated with the work that I was doing personally as a programmer or later leading teams of developers on, uh, on big projects for a public company. And I eventually became the vice president. And by that point, I knew the world was broken because I was getting all this attention. I was getting all the success the world would say is success. But I was absolutely uh, confounded because I thought the results my teams were producing, uh, the teams that I was leading, was incredibly substandard. And so around about 1999 or so, uh, I started becoming familiar with a guy named Kent Beck and uh, early wikis and then his book on extreme programming. And, and uh, suddenly I found a kindred spirit in Kent, somebody who was as frustrated as I was, but articulated a path out in a way that made sense to me. And it was right about that time that I began uh, a, a pretty significant change journey. Yeah, and I, I read Kent Breck's Extreme Programming in the late 90s, and it was probably the most influential, transformative thing in my career. And so I can totally see how that you know, led you. You had this kind of you know, disillusionment of the industry, and this kind of let, brought you more joy and excitement to the community. Yeah, and, and very quickly, because I had a perch at that point. I was a VP of R&D for one of the long-running, uh, high-flying public companies here in Ann Arbor. And uh, I had a very uh, supportive CEO who, when I told him what I wanted to do, even though there was a little bit of consternation about how much it might cost to get from where I was to where I wanted to go, he was incredibly supportive of me moving forward. And within six months of kind of making a significant personal decision about where I wanted to lead my team, I had completely transformed the R&D division of this public company and ultimately ended up transforming the whole company. And I got to run that experiment for two years. And, uh, you know, we all know what happened in 2001. And I was caught up in it like everybody else was. We had been acquired by a California company. And when 2001 blew up, they shuttered every remote office they had, including mine here in Ann Arbor. I was the top guy standing, so I got the uh, great fortune of laying off the whole team and then finally closing the door behind me and uh, went home, told my wife what had happened. And she said, you lost your job. You're, you're, you're unemployed. And I said, no, honey, I'm an entrepreneur now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's where Menlo got started. So I took the lessons inside of those two years by that tired old public company from 1999 to 2001, and we started Menlo Innovations with many of the practices I had honed in those two years in place. And, and you had a blank canvas at Menlo. So, I mean, what was that like doing a real, you know, building a culture and building an organization from scratch? Yeah, you know, a lot of people ask me that. They want to know which one was easier, you know, transforming an old tired organization or building a new one from scratch. And you know, they both have their challenges, of course. You know, you, we all have probably run into the buzzsaw of resistance to change wherever we happen to be. So that was hard. There's no question. But that whole 
entrepreneurial startup, get a few customers uh, going, that sort of thing. I mean, entrepreneurship presents its own unique challenges. So uh, I'm, I guess, given I'm still doing this thing 15 years later and uh, gotten back to the joy that I refer to in, uh, in the title of the book, and it's been there for largely 15 years of Menlo and those two years of interface systems, uh, you know, it feels both feel very successful to me uh, in terms of what what I count as success. And um, the fact that we've been able to keep Menlo going for 15 years, keep it profitable because we're self-funded. So there's no external uh, stakeholders we had to satisfy. Um, I, I think I am now officially unemployable. And, uh, you know, the uh, the entrepreneur bug has got me so hard, I can't even imagine going to a standard workplace anymore. That's awesome, Rich. I, I know that uh, in the last couple of years, Menlo has been in, in a, a newer location. Uh, prior to that, you were working in an old converted factory that looked very much like Edison's inventing lab. And in fact, I, I oftentimes, when people ask me, what should an agile environment look like in terms of the, the building and so on, I oftentimes refer them to the, the Menlo Innovations site. So tell us about what inspired you to, to make the move to that sort of inventing lab like Edison to begin with and, and why the transition to the new building. Sure. Uh, so we've moved three times in our history, and each time we've moved, we've tripled our footprint. Uh, so we've gone from 2,000 square feet to 6,000, and the last time we moved to 18,000. Uh, so um, you know that's just pure evidence of success and uh, and growth, which is you know fun um, and necessary, at least in terms of what we're trying to accomplish as a company. And the inspiration for each space, because the spaces all shared one quality uh, from end to end, wide open room, the entire team in the room together with an eye shot and ear shot. And we are one of those open office environments that people write magazine articles about saying this is an idea born in the mind of Satan in the deepest caverns of hell. Uh, and... Um, you know, and people write me, they're like, hey, Rich, here's here's data. They've got psychologists with data that prove your environment doesn't work, especially for introverted engineers. And I, and they're like, oh, it's funny. I've been there. Clearly, it does work. What gives? And I tell them, I say, look, um, we didn't build an open and collaborative workplace. We didn't build an open and collaborative office. What we built was an open and collaborative culture. And we fit our workspace to our culture. So what you've seen in every place we've been in is a physical space that is a reflection of the openness, the transparency, and the relationships we want to build between the people on the team. And, uh, you know, it, what's been interesting in the years of Menlo is that when we started Menlo in 2001, I'll tell you, everybody assumed the entire industry was going offshore, that we were going to send every software project ever heard of 12,000 miles away. And we believed we could improve teamwork by increasing the distance between the business sponsors of the team and the technical team by 12,000 miles. You know, and, and I just want to say that we took the exact opposite direction. We said, we're going to be together in a room together in largely in proximity to our clients. And so, um, <clears throat> all of this harkens back to another childhood experience. I had visiting the Menlo park, New Jersey lab of Thomas Edison, um, in, 
the connection we have to Edison is is an important one. Uh, and it comes from my childhood visits to a historic park here in southeast Michigan where Henry Ford, Thomas Edison's, you know, one of his best friends, recreated the Menlo Park, New Jersey lab of Thomas Edison. And I got to visit that as a kid. And I will tell you, the visits there gave me goosebumps. And I don't even know why. I was like eight. But I felt I could feel, even though Edison wasn't there with his team anymore, I could feel the human energy that um, was was part and parcel of what uh, Edison had created in that space. And I wanted that. I wanted that when I was a kid, and I certainly wanted that when I was an adult. Because I think the biggest challenge facing the teams that we're trying to work with today uh, any of us, you know, any of us in any industry is focused on human energy. You know, I think it's the biggest energy crisis we face in the world is the energy crisis in our workplaces. And, you know, the statistics are, are repeated over and over again. The 60 to 70 percent of people at work are disengaged. I actually look at it differently than that. I think 60 to 70 percent on average of each person on your team is disengaged. And if we can get back to that human energy, if we can get back to that point where um, we're actually focused on capturing the human energy of our teams, we can actually achieve heights and distances that were previously unimaginable. And that's what I wanted. That, that's what I was seeking. That's what I'd seen in that Menlo Park, New Jersey lab recreation in the historic park nearby uh, my home. And it's what we've tried to create here at Menlo. And having, you know, I live and work in Silicon Valley, so I understand the the excitement, not even not the excitement, just the buzz that you get in, at a, in an open workspace. And it brings me back to thinking about my time when I lived in China and the whole movement about feng shui, which if you're not familiar with it is you set, you set everything up. So that means, um, you know, if your pencil is always on the right side and you're right-handed, when you're when you have a thought, you can reach for your pencil and it's there. And it has to do with how the windows face and all this kind of stuff. And there's a very deliberateness to it. And I was wondering if you say that you feel that the workers in the environment that you're in have a good kind of energy when you walk through the Menlo Park lab with Thomas Edison, you had all this energy. How does that translate with the staff and with, and more importantly, the engagements they have with people outside of Menlo Innovation, the customers? Can you give us an example of two of the benefit you've had from the open workspace and then the type of attitude and environment? Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack from that, just that one question. So let me try and um, walk you through it. Uh, number one, when we created the company in the first place, we had a very decided mission that we're still on to this day, and I don't think we'll ever we'll ever get there. But our, our mission is to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. And, and we can say that tongue in cheek, but we take that very seriously. And we see three kinds of suffering in the world, which I think touch on much of what you're talking about here. Number one, there's the suffering uh, that the sponsors, the business sponsors of software projects have that, you know, people who like our company, they pay us to, you know, our customers pay us to design and build custom software. That's what we do for a living. That's our main economic engine. And our view on it is that um, business sponsors often can't steer projects to successful conclusions. I mean, I think our industry owns some of the largest business project failures in the history of mankind. Uh, and 
you know, that's frustrating for the for business sponsors to spend money and not get what they were hoping for, maybe not get anything at all, and they have to cancel the project before it finishes. So that was one focus of our attention. So that relationship with the business customers is critical. And that's what I saw, you know, in the early days when I saw, you know, Kent Beck talk about planning game, talk about regular, you know, you know, so let's say regular iterative incremental uh, activities with your customers to make sure that you're keeping the project on track. And so we have a five-day cycle here at Menlo where we're reconnecting with our clients in what we call a show and tell event every fifth day to make sure that they can see, actually see and feel and touch the software that we're building each five days so that if we're going off track and we will, we can get back on track. You know, it's that make mistakes faster kind of philosophy. Second kind of suffering we wanted to end is for the end users. You know, this is, I was always frustrated that we could never design things that, um, that people could use. You know, in my old days, uh, you know, we used to, well, our industry calls the people they serve stupid users. And then we write dummies books for those poor people. I, I kept thinking, this has got to be wrong. What industry can get away with calling the people they serve stupid? And what I realized there was something fundamentally missing is how do we connect in a way that's meaningful with the people we serve? You know, how do we delight the users rather than, you know, subject them to poor design? And so we had to craft an entirely new practice to do that. And then the third kind of suffering we wanted to end is for the people who do the work. You know, our industry is famous for death-marked culture. This is probably where I started to get into that crop of disillusionment because it felt like every day I was coming to work in firefighting gear. And we were just putting out fires everywhere and we could never get ahead of the game because we're spending so much time fixing problems we've created in the past. We didn't have any time to move forward to actually to to make progress on the on the bigger goals because we were spending so much time in the weeds just trying to fix problems we've created. And quite frankly, we were doing it with very tired teams. You know, our industry is the industry of death march, you know, the 24-7, the all-nighters. I mean, I regularly had pulled all-nighters myself or worked with people who did or, or had people working for me who would proudly claim an all-nighter to get some bug fix. And the trouble is, and I think, you know, you guys know this as well as I do, tired programmers make bad software. And so I didn't want any of that. So we focus a lot on the human energy of the team. The fact that they're all in the room together, the fact that we work a fairly normal day and a really normal week, we, we work 40-hour work weeks, we never work weekends, we never deny or delay vacation requests. And when you go on vacation, you're cut off electronically from the company, so you can't like check in. You're, you're literally going to go away and have a vacation. And the way we get to that is has everything to do with how we use pairing inside of our room. And I'm sure we'll get into this more, but I will tell you that the pairing discipline we have here at Menlo allows us other things to be true. How many babies do you have at Menlo now, Rich? So uh, Oliver just is coming in about one day a week now. He's Menlo baby number 13 in the last nine years. And uh, one of our team members just announced that uh, he and his wife are expecting a baby. So Menlo baby number 14 is on the way. You might want to explain that to the audience there, Richard, what a Menlo baby is. Daniel and I know, but I think the audience needs to know. Yeah, and it, and it goes back to something fundamental to our culture here, and that is uh, there's, a, there's a statement we use here all the time called, let's run the experiment. And uh, it, it pervades everything we do here, and it gives us permission to try things, even if we don't know ahead of time that they're going to work. And one of our more famous experiments has to do with the babies. So um, 
uh, I better explain this quickly. Uh, <laughs> um, so about nine years ago, Tracy had little Maggie, she and her husband, it was her second child. Uh, she was off for three months on paid maternity leave, and then she was ready to come back to work. And, um, and she said, you know, Rich, uh, we, we're stuck. Uh, the daycare we're going to use is full right now, and grandparents live too far away to help. And I looked at Tracy, and I said, well, I'll tell you what, bring her into work. And she said, what do you mean? I said, bring her into the office. She said, all day? I said, sure. She said, every day? I said, why not? And she said, Rich, what if she makes a fuss here in this big open room? And in fact, where will I put her? And I said, Tracy, she's three months old. She's not going anywhere. Put her in a bassinet on the floor wherever you're working. And, I, and she said, yeah, but what if she disturbs the environment? I said, are you kidding? It's like a noisy restaurant here. It, you know, nobody will hear it. She says, come on, Rich, you've raised kids yourself. You know how fussy the babies can get. And I said, Tracy, you're the mom. I trust you. You know, you'll do the right thing. We'll work it out together. Let's run the experiment. And so Tracy and me brought in Maggie. And Maggie came in all day, every day for several months. And it was delightful. And, you know, now we're up to, you know, nearly Menlo baby number 14 in the last nine years. And I will tell you, when you run experiments, expect the unexpected, especially when it involves babies. Uh, you know, when the baby fussed, and of course it did, and Maggie fussed, there were certain times where she just needed comfort. And the team raced to rescue Maggie. The team went to uh, uh, the baby and said, can I hold? right now. And so the team raised the baby, you know, it was like the village raising the baby. And then we found out that our customers behave better when you bring a baby to some of the planning meetings. And so we all of a sudden, like, oh my gosh, the baby's part of the marketing program here. And so we've had a bunch of delightful interactions between our customers and the babies along the way as well. And Richard, that, that's an awesome story about the Menlo babies. And we love the concept of running the experiment and seeing what happens. Because, you know, worst case, something changes. And best case, you get something new and innovative. Can you talk about some other experiments that you've run that led to some great innovations? Yeah. I mean, right now we're, um, we're right in the midst of an experiment where we want the team to understand exactly where we are as a business and so for much of the last couple of years, we've been sort of pushing our way into open book finance as an experiment, uh, putting the numbers up on the wall and having the team reporting out those numbers so they understand the health of the business. And, uh, and this has been an interesting evolution of the team because now they're, they're more aware of the business itself, how all the pieces of the business connect and impart. Uh, and what's interesting about that is it, it fits into a different experiment we've been running from the earliest days of Menlo, where uh, we open our doors for tours. And in the earliest days, we would just do a couple a week, and we just would invite people in who would express some interest and we'd say, hey, come on by. And we, get, we were getting so much interest, we started programming some of the tours in the sense of saying, hey, let's publish them ahead of time. And then we were getting so much interest in those, we decided to start charging for some of the tours because the staff we were allocating to them was, it was, it was sort of getting onerous and was starting to take off. And so we started running an experiment to say, okay, what if we offered still some free tours so people who can't afford anything still have a chance to come, but we'll offer different versions of paid tours. Well, I can tell you last year we ran 4,000 people came through our doors from all over the world last year. And they, um, uh, and most of them are now paid guests as they come through, which has generated a tremendous amount of revenue. And uh, and what's interesting is on the tours themselves, we're walking people through our open book finance stuff. 
So now the open book finance stuff itself, the numbers we are now sharing internally with the team, we're sharing with the world. And so anybody who's interested in the finances of Menlo and the, and the various components of it can come look, uh, you know, and that sort of opens us up in ways that are probably only a privately held company would be uh, able to do. Uh, but it, it connects the world to Menlo and it connects our team to the world in a way that I think is different than most companies would think of. Well, that, that's definitely taking transparency to a whole new level. And I, I've done some open book uh, finance myself and actually someone left over it just because they thought the company wasn't growing and it which was great because it, it you know they had different goals and things like that but for the most part it worked and the transparency that you have and I actually want to circle back to the tours and I, I didn't know you actually had 4,000 people come through your office um, every year and when I think about that I think that the naysayers or the people who would be against it would be like, oh, 4,000 people divided by 200 workdays. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of disruption, just like the baby would be disruption. So I'm sure it wasn't disruptive and negative or you wouldn't do it. So can you talk about how you guys, you at Menlo, learned from the people on the tour or the value that you get from those tours? Yeah, it's interesting. It dawned on me at a certain point a few years in how much the tours hold us accountable, including me. As in the earliest days, I would lead most of the tours. You know, it was it was a natural place for the CEO to be and the team's working away. So I can free up my time, lead the tours and so on. I can't even do a third of the tours anymore. There's just too many. of them. We have three simultaneous tours going on tomorrow in the space. And um, so how does this affect the team? Almost everybody who comes on a tour asks. And, and part of it is... Um, Imagine how it makes the team feel when 4,000 people from all over the world, I mean, literally all over the world, uh, we just had a group in from Indonesia uh, last week. And um, imagine how it makes the team feel when you're interesting enough that people want to not only come and just look, they want to dive in, they want to sort of dig their hands through uh, the, the rich soil of your company and they want to they learn about you. And the and the tours now are led by team members. We don't have official tour guides. We have we have tour guides who are team members who are allocated running a tour, but they are actually practitioners. They're workers in the space. They'll be our programmers, our high tech anthropologists, our project managers, just people who work here will lead the tours. Um, and I still lead quite a few of them myself. And but what one of the moments I realized that these tours had far more meaning than I realized was I had gathered a group at the at the um, at kind of the front door and they were starting to assemble. And as I turned, I noticed something in the room. Some of the team members had jumped out of their chairs, gone up to our visual management systems that we sort of chart our progress with colorful little sticky dots. And I knew what was going on in this moment. They were bringing all the visual artifacts on the wall perfectly up to date to where they were. And the fact that they were slightly out of date was an interesting moment of accountability. And what I saw was I realized in that moment, I said, oh, the tours are holding the team accountable to our process. They don't want me walking them through, walking the tour guests through, finding out that, you know, oh, what, what story card are you working on? We'll look for the yellow dot in your swim lane and find out that's not the card you're working on. So the tours themselves started to affect the team. They wanted the tour artifacts to line up exactly with what was really happening. And it was never off by a lot, but they found it annoying when I would 
you know, point to an artifact and say, oh, yeah, well, Keely and Ted are working on this card right now. How do I know? Because yellow dot in their lane. And I call out to Keely and Ted and I say, hey, Keely, hey, hey, Ted, what card are you working on right now? And it wasn't the right card. And they'd be slightly embarrassed, maybe even annoyed that the artifacts weren't up to date. So I realized in that moment, the tours were holding us accountable to our process in a way that we could continue to share with the world. The other thing I, I realized at a certain point was the tours are holding me accountable to our process because the tours are happening right in proximity to the team. Uh, so as I'm leading people around the room, telling them this story about Menlo and so on, the team's hearing it. And I can only imagine if, if what the story I was telling was so different than the actual reality of the company that, you know, imagine somebody pulls me aside later and says, hey, Rich, that company you were describing on the tour, on the tour. That's a really cool company. I'd love to work there. Could you introduce me to that company? You know, it, you know they, they can hold me accountable because, you know, we got to tell the truth here. If you're not telling the truth, man, you know, everybody's like, you know, living a lie every single day or something like that. That would be, um, that would be a hard lie to keep alive if, if you're doing this one to three times a day. And so I found that just that alone is valuable. But of course, the guests ask us hard questions about our process. They ask us hard questions about our culture. And those questions cause us to think harder about what we should be working on. And so the questions themselves spur us onto a better version of us. I, I really love that attitude, Rich. It speaks volumes to the nature of your organization and you were alluding to, or you were mentioning how agile has, has, you know, kind of hit the mainstream. It's, it's around the world, the philosophy of, of agile and so on. Where do you think agile is heading next? What does the future hold for organizations that want to become more agile and, and the movement in whole as a whole? I think there's a couple of areas in terms of next number one. And I, I still see this and I'm quite frankly, it's still a little stunned by it myself where I will go speak at a conference, maybe some of the conferences you've seen me speak at. And here we are, you know, let's call it 15 to 17 years into this movement. And all the people come up to me and like, wow, you're really doing this stuff. I'm like, well, yeah, of course it works. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we've been talking about this stuff for a decade, but we're not doing it yet. I'm like, well, you should start doing so I think there's a bit of next where there's a lot of organizations who've been talking about Agile or Lean or any of those practices and are going to start doing them. And I think we're helping in our way through the people who come visit here because I think the thing that people appreciate about the tourists here is if you hear it at conferences, read about a book, I think there's just a core sort of need inside of many people's guts. It says, could you show me just one? Could I go see it? Can I go dig into it? So I think that's part of the reason there's so many people coming here is that we have opened our doors and we are being transparent. So I think this idea of going and seeing, because there are more examples than just us, of course, that that idea that people will open their doors and show themselves right where they are, I think is a really important part of the, the, the shift. I think the other thing where organizations have moved substantially in this direction is what they're realizing is there is only so far you can get if the only place you've actually moved the needle is in the technical team. There is this 
inordinate need to move the business to agility versus just the technical team. Because if the business doesn't behave any differently, you probably aren't going to get the business the, the business value out of the shift in the technical team. And Rich, you've you've uh, built an organization where the entire organization, sales, marketing, obviously finance, is very agile. Any advice that you have or, or peering into the future of how other organizations can make the jump to get from just being agile in the IT team to being agile in the entire organization? Well, I think there's there's two fundamental things I share with the world when they come here. People ask me this question all the time. It's like, how do we get started? Where do we begin? That sort of thing. And, and I tell them a couple of different things. Number one, you know, I'll look them in the eye. If I've got a group here, I, I can see it in their eyes. You know, they, they've come, it's often a cross-functional group of a company comes, we've got a a company coming from uh, from the East Coast tomorrow, and they're bringing 16 of their team members, high-level execs, and, and they're going to be here for the whole day. And what I often see is there's this look in their eyes where they're nodding at just the right places, and I know what's on their mind. They're saying, you go, Rich. You tell them. You tell them what they need to hear. Tell them how they need to change. And I stop them at that point. If I see that look, I can often recognize it. I tell them, no, understand. The first place change has to occur is you. Each one of you has to change. This isn't about change the world around me. This is, I had to change. I had to become a different kind of leader. I had to unlearn a lot of poor managerial behaviors that I had gathered during my profit disillusionment days. I had learned to lead people by motivating them with fear. And I needed to get away from that. So fundamentally, the first place change has to occur is inside of each individual on the team. The second thing is, and depending on the size of the organization, what I tell them is seek the highest ground possible. I fortunately had great support when I did this the first time inside of that public company. I had the support of my CEO and I had the support of my executive peers. That was huge. They weren't necessarily going to help me change, but they easily could have defeated me. They could have pecked me to death like ducks. And because you know, this is a multi-front war if you really are trying to change and everybody's against you and you won't survive. So what I mean by seek the highest ground possible, you need someone above you at the highest level possible who can act as a heat shield because change takes time. Change will look like you're going slower at first before you pick up speed again. And during that time, you need protection. You need somebody who's going to say, leave them alone. They've, they've got a job to do. Let them get there. I trust that they're going in the right direction. And without that executive support, I think most initiatives around change of any kind get defeated before they actually achieve what they were hoping to. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Without a level of engagement, no one's able to get a level of engagement, a level of commitment. You know, the organization is not going to move. It's just that simple. And there is another aspect to this I think is very important, especially for technical teams to realize is I had to learn to speak the language of my business peers in the organization. I couldn't talk about, you know, our every industry is filled with its acronyms and its buzzwords, right? And we can do that, whether it's agile or scrum or lean or any of those kind of change methodologies, if you will. We can overwhelm them with the words and the, and the executives we're trying to influence are going to get glazed over. They're going to be like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, uh, and so we have to learn to speak their language. We have to speak in terms of things they value along the way and why the things that we're doing are so important to their um, 
to their goals and to what they're trying to accomplish in the company. This isn't about us, you know, changing us so we can have a more enjoyable life and, and everybody else's life is going to stay the same. We have to realize that we are a component of a much larger business system. And if we don't learn how we're going to support that business system in moving forward in addressing the, the, the focus uh, attention on our competitors or on a changing marketing landscape, anything like that, uh, we're just the tree falling in the forest with nobody there to hear. And so we have to think about it in that way. One last question for you. You've written a very popular book and you've spoken at many conferences. Anything long-term on the horizon for you or Menlo that you want to tell our, our listeners about? Yeah, we're, we're going through a very interesting exercise right at the moment. It's an exercise in, um, uh, in visioning. Uh, we're looking down the road and we're saying, what kind of company do we want to be a decade out? And we're following a particular methodology that's defined by a company we greatly admire called Zingerman's, another company right here in Ann Arbor. And so we're creating a 10-year vision for the company, and we're going through that process right now. So stay tuned. We'll probably, like everything else in our world, we'll publish it to the world so they can see where we're going. But what we see ourselves heading into, the, the next frontier for us is, you know, we've earned the majority of our income over the years doing design and development for our customers. That's been the majority of our revenue. Over time, uh, we've made investments in some of our some of our client relationships. So, in fact, we end up um, capturing some long-term revenue through royalties or stock arrangements, that sort of thing. The tour part of Menlo, the experience part, as we call it, is growing. But what we see now is we are being pulled headlong into uh, companies who are saying, Help us change to something that has the same values and principles you do. So you're going to see us move more into a transformation type of initiative, but in a different way than, uh, than you know, con a pure consultancy does, because we will do it in the context of still doing work. The question is, how can we use the work that we do, not only to create the software that our clients are asking to do, but to help that work inform their transformation as an organization. Rich, it's been a deep pleasure. I know you're a very busy guy. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us on this show. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you guys. Next week on the show, we have Sarah Ford from GitHub. Sarah brings her energy and passion to the show and talks to us about analogies between agile and sailing, amongst many other things. I hope you can join us then. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv.